Let's pray and ask God to meet us in the word this morning. Lord, thank you for Isaiah. What an amazing book. I've loved chapter 46 this week. And thank you for what you've done in me. And I just pray that you'd unleash the power of your word now. Get me out of the way. Let your word have free reign here. Give us receptive hearts that we would hear and say yes. Teach us, encourage us, strengthen us. Save those who aren't yet trusting you, Lord Jesus, through this now I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to start off telling you a a story of a woman named Suzanne, which I read about in a book a couple years ago. Uh, Difficult story to tell. Suzanne uh, was a fervent follower of Jesus Christ. And she, uh, through her high school years, she felt like God was calling her to become a missionary, uh, specifically to Taiwan. And so she was praying through her high school years about this call to Taiwan, and then she said, well, Lord, I'd like to get married, so I pray that you'd bring me a husband, a man who's passionately in love with you, Jesus Christ, and who's also called not just to be a missionary, but who's called to be a missionary to Taiwan. So she's praying earnestly for this through high school. She goes away to college, and she meets this young man, and she's really interested in him. And they start to talk and to get to know each other, and he loves Jesus Christ. And then she finds out that he's called to be a missionary. And then she finds out that he's called to be a missionary in Taiwan. And she's just blown away. And so their friendship grows, deepens. They're praying together. They're in the word together. And uh, as, their, as their relationship deepens and blossoms, they start praying about whether they should get married or not. And so they're both praying earnestly. And she seeks lots of counsel from other people, godly men, godly women who pray and just say, yes, this looks right. She's fasting and praying, asking for God's guidance, asking for God's leading every sense that she has in her heart and just by the Lord. And counsel is, yes, marry this man. And so they get married right after college. And then two years after uh, college, as they're in missionary training school, uh, she discovers that he's involved in an affair. Devastates her. He sees how devastated she is. He says he's going to stop that, comes back to her. Uh, Two or three months later, he's back involved in the affair again and starts abusing her and uh, finally ends up divorcing her, moving out, moving in with his girlfriend, at which time she discovers that she's pregnant. So there's the story. So she meets with her pastor and sits down and tells him the whole story. And she says, did God know this was going to happen? Because if God knew this was going to happen, why didn't he stop it? If God knew this was going to happen, I was seeking him, praying, he could have easily stopped me from marrying this man. Did God know this was going to happen? And I was stunned reading this story about what the pastor said to her. What do you think of this? The pastor said to her, God did not know this was going to happen. God gave you the best advice he could given the limited information he had. God God doesn't know everything about the future. He he doesn't control everything about the future. So he, he gave you the best counsel, the best information that he had. So I was shocked when I read that. Um, made me think a lot. I hope it makes you think. That's why I'm sharing the story. 
This pastor uh, holds to convictions which sometimes people call open theism. Do we have a little table up here? Can we get that up? Open theism. And basically what open theism uh, believes is that God does not know everything about the future, and God does not control everything about the future, and so there will be some trials that will come your way that will be entirely random, that, that where there's no meaning, there's no purpose, and it's foolish to even try to find any meaning or purpose because some things are just random. That's open theism. Anyway, we're not getting that up there. Uh, the alternative is, is what's called classical theism, for lack of a better word. And classical theism holds that God knows everything about the future, knows in detail everything about the future, and that he controls all the details of the future. And the implication of that for our trials is that every trial that someone who's following Jesus, someone who's trusting Jesus, every trial you come to has been wisely and lovingly and purposefully brought about by God to bring you great good. So open theism, classical theism, what does the Bible teach is the question. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 46, which is where God gives us an answer. Isaiah chapter 46. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and we'll bring a Bible to you. Isaiah 46 is on page 607 in the Bibles that we're passing out. Which is true? Page 607. A little bit of background. Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet raised up by God to speak and write God's words to the nation of Israel. He speaks and writes these words around 700 B.C. And as we've mentioned before, Isaiah chapters 40 through 55, that section was written to be especially read by Israel when they're in exile in Babylon to bring them comfort, to bring them encouragement, and to help them not get tempted to follow the Babylonian idols, which is what's the point of chapter 46. Here God gives them, he's anticipating they're going to read this 150 years down the road, so they'll be strengthened not to follow Babylonian idols. So look at, so, so he, he starts off in the first seven verses talking about how he's different from the Babylonian idols. Look at what he says and give special note to uh, the word, how often the word bearing, B-E-A-R, or carrying is used, and who carries whom. Notice this, verse 46. I'm sorry, chapter 46, verse 1. Bel bows down, that's one of the Babylonian gods. Nebo, another one of the Babylonian gods, stoops. Their idols, Bel and Nebo's idols, are on beasts and livestock, these things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. So if you want an idol to come with you, you've got to put it on a donkey and carry it to where you are, or, the, or your God won't be there with you. Verse 2, they stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. So when Babylon is conquered, Bel and Nebo are going to be carried away by the conquering army. Verse 3, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried by me, by God, from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, 
and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. So the point that God wants to make here is that God is entirely different from the idols. There's just no comparison between God, the God of the universe, and the idols of Babylon. And one picture is that idols have to be carried by people. Okay? Idols have to be carried by people. So I want you just to picture this here. Chris Keener brought me a little, kind of a little, a little statue. Let's pretend this isn't, well, this is heavy, Chris. You're right. Wow, man. Okay, so, so picture an Israelite here. All right, so here's, here's the idol in his house, and he's just saying, Bell, Nebo, you're awesome, you know, you're powerful, you're amazing, okay, I gotta go to work. So if I want Bell and Nebo to be with me, oh, this is a lot of work, but you know, you gotta carry, because you know, I want her to be at work with me, so how you doing there? All right, good, so now I'm at work, and so now Bell and Nebo's here with me. And God wants us to sense the ludicrousness of that situation. It's absolutely ridiculous when you think about it. Idols have to be carried. If you want your God to be with you, hope you're strong, okay? God's totally different. God does not need us to carry him. God carries us. Look again at verses 3 and 4. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. All the remnant of the house of Israel who've been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. That is wonderful. Now, who's God talking to here? Who does God carry? He's talking to the house of Jacob and the remnant of the house of Israel. He's talking to his people. That's how God's people were described in the Old Testament. Those in the Old Testament, the way you became part of God's people is by trusting God's mercy. New Testament today, this would be those who are trusting Jesus Christ as Savior, as Lord, as treasure. This is really important to understand this. You don't become part of God's people by trying to be good enough. It's like if I go to church a certain number of times. No, no, no. The way you become part of God's people, you can never be good enough by trying to be good enough to become part of God's people. The only way to become one of God's people is to put your trust in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as your Savior. He died to pay for your sins. He rose again on your behalf. He's your heart-satisfying treasure. You trust Him. In that moment, you're forgiven for all your sins, past, present, and future. He goes to work, starts to change your heart. You're adopted into God's family. You know his love. And God is carrying you. Now what does it mean that God carries you? What, what's, what is Isaiah, what does God want us to have in our minds here? And Chris actually, this will be a little bit interesting here. Thanks Chris for bringing this. Okay, this is the best we could do. All right, we appreciate it. Okay, so, all right, so here we are. Okay, so if God's carrying you, I try to think about okay, when I was carrying Anna or Brad when they were younger, what, what's involved in this? And I thought of at least two things. One is when God's carrying you, remember when I was carrying Anna or carrying Brad, there's, there's affectionate love there, right? You're not just carrying like you're carrying a block of wood, right? And when God is carrying you from womb to gray hair, 
He's loving you. He has compassion for you. He's delighting in you. He cares about you. It's beautiful. Not only that, when, when I used to carry Anna or Brad, I'm, I'm giving them like strong support. I mean, they're tired maybe, and I would carry them, or I'm carrying them over something, uh, something of difficulty. And so if you're trusting Jesus Christ, because you're trusting him, at every moment of your life, God is, is supporting you, strengthening you, helping you. So let's, let's make this real tangible. So Friday, as you were at work, if you're trusting Jesus Christ, because you're trusting in his death on the cross, all day long on Friday, God was carrying you. He was carrying you. He was loving you, caring for you, strongly supporting you. Uh, yesterday, as you were doing the laundry, God was carrying you, okay? Loving you, compassion for you, delighting in you, and strongly supporting you. Doesn't that transform laundry, okay? Uh, this afternoon, eating lunch or whatever you're doing, God is carrying you all through this afternoon, loving you, affection for you, delighting in you, pleased with you through Christ. And he's strongly supporting you, there to help you do whatever you need, to be there for you. That's the picture that God wants us to have about his carrying. And now there's one other question that struck me, or one other implication of carrying. When I'm carrying Brad, sorry Brad, anyway, this isn't Brad, so when I'm carrying this anonymous, um, I'm, I'm taking him somewhere, Right? He's going somewhere that I'm choosing he's going to go to, right? I'm leading him into something that he's going to experience in his future. So here's the question that I thought was raised from verses 1 through 7. Does God know and control the future to which he's taking us? Or does he not know and control the future to which he's taking us? If your dad, you're, you're, take, you know, you're walking with your son, you're carrying him, you're taking him into, into something that he's going to experience in the future, same with God. At every moment, he's leading us. He, he's leading you into some future this afternoon. He's leading you into some future tomorrow, some future a year from now. Does God know and control the future that he's leading you to? You feel the question? And I believe God answers that in verses 8 through 11. Look at what he says. Okay. Verses 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Now he's addressing those who had not humbled themselves before his mercy, were not trusting him. So remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end, the future, from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, the future, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey, he's talking about Cyrus here, I'll explain that in a moment. Calling a bird of prey, Cyrus, emperor of Persia, from the east, the man of my counsel, using these The reason he's coming is because this was my counsel, this is my purpose. The man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. So here God is continuing the theme. He started in verses 1 through 7 to show that there's no comparison between him and anything else in existence. He's like no other being. And in verse 10... He describes two things that make him different from everything else in existence. Verse 10. First of all, 
he says that he knows every detail of the future. Read the beginning, first half of verse 10 again. Declaring the end from the beginning. Okay, so here, here God is back at the beginning of time, and he's declaring the end, the future. Right? So if he's declaring the future from the beginning, then he knows the future. Next line. From ancient times, things not yet done. So here he is back in ancient times, and he's declaring things that are not yet done. That's the future. So in the past, God speaks the future. How can he do that? It's because he knows the future. He knows the future. That's why he can speak it in the past. Remember uh, Psalm 139, verse 16. Such an amazing statement that David makes. I'm not going to quote it, but he says, Before I was even born, you have my days written for me. All of them. When as yet there was not one of them. This should raise lots of questions that, that I can't answer, okay? But, but this is the truth. God knows everything about the future. That's the first truth about God he wants to make known in verse 10. But the second half of verse 10, not only does God know every detail of the future, he controls every detail of the future. Read all of verse 10 again, and you'll see the, the point declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. In other words, when he declares things in the future, those things in the future are there as a result of his counsel, his purpose. That's why those things happen, by his counsel and purpose. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So the future that God knows, he knows because he's going to accomplish that future. God's not sitting back looking saying, oh my gosh, that's happening and that's happening and that's going to happen. Well, I know everything's going to happen, but yikes! It's not at all. He knows what's going to happen because he does what's going to happen. He knows every detail of the future and he controls every detail of the future. I think about Ephesians 1.11, I think it is. He works everything after the counsel of his will. Okay, so he, he knows the future. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow. He knows what's going to happen in Libya this next week. He knows who's going to be present in this next term. He knows the exact day you're going to die. He knows all of that. He, he knows all of that, not just because he just knows it, but because he's in control of all of that. So this is who God is. He knows every detail of the future And he controls every detail of the future. And then in verse 11, he gives a concrete example of how he's done this in a way that they can see tangibly for themselves. We've talked about Cyrus before. Remember Cyrus? 700 BC, which is when God spoke these words, and in previous chapters of Isaiah, God said a couple things about what Cyrus would do about 150 years down the road. Number one, Cyrus hadn't even been born yet. There would be a Persian emperor named Cyrus who'd rise up. Cyrus, Persian emperor. And Cyrus, the Persian emperor, would gain power and would end up conquering Babylon, who was the big heavyweight at the time. So Cyrus is going to be raised up, named Cyrus, emperor of Persia, conquer Babylon, and at the time he conquers Babylon, what's Israel doing? They're exiles in Babylon. And God says, Cyrus is not just going to conquer Babylon, he's going to send you all back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. So here God is declaring all these things in the future. 
And look at how he describes this in verse 11. So you'll see this isn't just that God knows this is going to happen. God makes this happen. Calling a bird of prey from the east. That's a way of describing Cyrus. He was like an eagle. Birds of prey, right? They're the ones who eat animals, right? Okay, Okay, that's what Cyrus is tearing up, okay? Okay, so calling a bird of prey from the east. Persia was the east. The man of my counsel from a far country, he's going to be raised up because I'm going to, that's my counsel, that's my purpose, that's my will. I have spoken that this is what would happen with Cyrus, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will do it. So here's a concrete example in verse 11 of how God knows every detail of the future and does every detail of the future. Now, this raises all kinds of questions, like I said, and uh, I can't answer them. Just, just let you know. Um, a lot of them will come down to, if God knows every detail of the future and controls every detail of the future, then aren't we just robots? Right? And the Bible's answer to that is no. The Bible teaches two things very clearly. One is that we make authentic Genuine choices for which we are accountable. Okay? Did you all hear that? The Bible teaches very clearly we make authentic, genuine choices for which we are accountable. Hold to that. And the same Bible teaches that God controls everything, including our choices. We say, well, now wait a minute. Those don't fit together. But I mean, think about it. I mean, do you think that God might know you know, a little more about how things fit together than me with my little pea-sized brain? Right? I mean, the fact that I can't see how things like that fit together, does that mean they don't fit together? Do you know how many things I don't understand that work? Right? Lots and lots of them. Okay, so, can't answer all the questions, but the Bible teaches that God knows every detail of the future and that God is in control of every detail of the future. So we're asking the question, does God know and control the future to which he's carrying us? And I believe the scripture's answer is yes. He knows it, and yes, he is in control of it. And this raises one more question then. Okay, so what that means is that when God's carrying me, okay, when he's carrying me, carrying you, he's leading us to a future that he knows and that he's ordained and that he controls. So is that good news or bad news? Right? What is the future he's leading us to? Okay, somebody read ahead. Okay, let's take a look here. What is the future to which God carries his people? Look at verses 12 and 13. He's still talking to those in Israel who are distant from him, and he's inviting them back. He says, listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. Righteousness here is a word for God's saving acts, God's salvation. I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So here's what God is saying to this aspect of Israel who is wayward and and, and stubborn and rebellion. He's saying, if you will return, if you will bend the knee before me in, in faith and trust my mercy... It's like he would say to maybe some of you, if you would turn from whatever else you're trusting and put your trust in Jesus Christ, Son of God, living 
crucified, resurrected, coming, coming again, if you'd, if you'd put your trust in, in him, then God will be carrying you and every turn of the road is going to bring you to more and more salvation. That's the word here in verse 13. Salvation. Every turn of the road. You can be absolutely confident that every turn of the road, every, every trial he has you heading into is going to bring you more and more salvation. Every right turn, more and more salvation. Every single turn of the road is ordained by God to bring you more and more of salvation. It doesn't mean that you... Okay, that's a little bit of a complicated thing. Do you, can you get more saved? No, okay. Once you're saved, you're saved, okay? But... In this context, what salvation is referring to is really the, the heart of salvation. I, I thought about explaining it this way. Sometimes in the Bible, salvation refers to physical healing, right? Sometimes, okay? But sometimes salvation is there when there's no physical healing, right? Okay? Sometimes salvation in the Bible uh, means being delivered from a trial, right? Other times you can experience salvation while you're still in the trial, Okay, so healing not, trial not, but there's one thing that the Bible always is referring to when it's talking about, about, his, about salvation, and what that, what that is is more of God's presence, nearness, love in Jesus Christ. That's always the heart. And we can experience that more and more and more. Once you're saved, you're saved, you're forgiven, you're adopted, you're justified, you're being sanctified. But through our lives, we go from glory to glory, from faith to faith. We can experience more and more and more of the heart-filling, heart-satisfying presence of God in the person of Jesus. That increases, right? It does, okay? Press in. Don't settle for where you are, and don't pull back from where you've been. Press in for more. So that's what's being described as salvation here. More and more because we can experience more and more of his nearness, more and more of his presence, more and more of beholding his glory, worshiping his majesty, having our hearts filled and satisfied with who he is. So here's the picture. Because you're trusting Jesus Christ, from womb to gray hairs, God's carrying you. And every turn of the road, moving over here, God's bringing you here because this is going to bring you more of his presence in Jesus. And then if it's a right turn here, he's here because this is going to bring you more of God's presence. And over here, every trial, every difficulty, every problem is there because it's going to bring you more of his presence. I, I thought about illustrating this with the story of Joseph. That's, the, that's Joseph up there with his dad and brothers. You know the story of Joseph? Uh, Joseph lived about a thousand years before God spoke these words through Isaiah. That's 1700 B.C. And at every turn of the road in Joseph's life, God was bringing him to more and more salvation, which in this case, it meant food for him and God's people through a terrible famine, right? So think about the story. God sends, or Joseph goes out to meet his brothers out where they're taking care of the flocks. So God is bringing him out there because this is going to bring him more more salvation. And then uh, the brothers end up uh, selling him into slavery. Yikes, what a terrible thing. God is bringing Joseph into slavery to bring about more and more of his presence, more and more, in this case, food for Israel. And so then he's sold to Potiphar's house. God is bringing Joseph into Potiphar's house because that's going to bring about great good. And then Potiphar's wife unjustly, wrongly accuses Joseph of rape. 
And Joseph gets thrown into this dungeon. Dark, slimy, rats. How long was he in that dungeon? Ten years? (gasps) Okay, now if in year three, you were talking to Joseph, and he said to you, where's God? Right? Here you are, I mean, you've been sold, you're you're, you're in this dungeon, falsely accused, there you are, where's God? Could you say to Joseph, God is here, he's carrying you, great good is coming, Joseph. The day is coming when you will see it. Now see, it's really easy for us to say this because we see the end of the story. But put yourself before the story's ended. You're three in the dungeon. You're four in the dungeon. Is he still here? Yes. You're five? No. Is he still there? Yes. Six, seven, ten years. Slime, rats, yucky food. Okay, but then God sent the wine taster and the baker into the dungeon and... Joseph interprets a dream for them, right? And the wine taster ends up living and the baker ends up being killed just like Joseph interpreted. Then Pharaoh has this dream and the wine taster tells Pharaoh, I know somebody who can interpret dreams. He's in the dungeon. And so then God brings Pharaoh out who interprets, God brings Joseph out, interprets the dream for Pharaoh and Pharaoh is so blown away he says, you are going to be the number two man in Egypt. And you are going to take care of all of our food so that we can survive seven years of famine. And in fact, bring all your people with us so they can be fed too. Every turn of the road. But see, many of you are in year three of the dungeon right now. And it's hard to believe that God's there. It's hard to believe that he is carrying you, that he has brought you into that dungeon. Because great good is going to come out of that dungeon experience. But it is and it will. It is and it will. The day is coming, just like Joseph had that day. There he is. They're all together now. There he is, number two guy in Egypt. Family's blown away. The day is coming when you will thank God for every trial that you've experienced because you'll be so blown away by the good that he's brought. What is that good going to be? We don't know all the details, but we do know one thing for certain sure. Always, always, it's more of him. More of him, more of him, and more of him. That's the future to which God brings his people. Okay, now, what about Suzanne? Okay? What would you say to Suzanne if she was in your home group? To answer that, I want to tell you about another woman who was also abandoned by her husband, divorced by her husband, and left in an even worse situation. Okay? True story. Don't know her name. This is an anonymous story. Her pastor had taught her that God knows the future and that God's in control of the future. And she went through great pain with her husband and abandoning her and divorcing her. But she had a rock-solid foundation through all of that. And, and she wrote her pastoral letter thanking him for what he had taught from the Word. And I want you to get this letter. Here's what she said. Can we, there it is, okay. Here's what she said. If God does not know everything the future holds, how is he any different from any other friend on whose shoulder I might cry? He may be good, 
and loving and righteous, but if he is not in control of what happens to me tomorrow, how can I have any confidence that he can work all things together for good? See that? The confidence that God knows what he is doing has gotten me through the last five years. Five years of pain. God knows what he is doing. He's doing something. He is doing something here, and he knows what he's doing. And that's what got her through the five years. I believe that God knew from the beginning what my ex-husband would do. That God cannot be surprised by anything. Because I believe that, I can believe that God intends this whole thing for my good. It's not just that everything will turn out all right in the end. It's that right now, he is working his purpose out in my life to move me to the next degree of glory. If that working includes suffering, how much better it is to know that it is purposed by a loving, all-powerful God who gives unto each day what he deems best. So what would, what would this woman... I mean, first of all, can, can you feel the strength, the fortitude? It reminds me of Peter's description of Sarah in 1 Peter 3. She smiled at the future without any fears. She would look at whatever would happen in the future. No need to fear, because God knows the future and God controls the future. Doesn't mean no hard things are ever going to happen. But any hard thing God brings you into, he will sustain you, he will comfort you, he will help you, and great good is the purpose for all of it. That's why he's bringing you. So what would this woman say to Suzanne? And what would she say to some of you who right now are in the thick of very dark, deep waters? I just picked out four statements from her letter and highlighted them. Okay, there they are. Here's what she would say to Suzanne. Here's what she would say to you right now. And this is what God's word says. God knows what he is doing. He's doing something. This is not random. God knows what he's doing. God knew from the beginning what your ex-husband would do, that this would happen. God knew from the beginning that this would happen. God intends this whole thing for your good. And right now he's working his purposes out in your life to move you to the next degree of glory. So trust him. Be strong in his goodness and his sovereignty. Trust him in his goodness and his sovereignty. Be strong. Rest in him. Ask him for help. And know that the day is coming when you will thank him even for this trial that he's brought your way. Now let's stand together. Here's what I want us to do. Some of you are in the midst of, of deep trials right now. And I just want to have you come on up. Right? Just stand right here. And I want us to pray for you. Okay? Because we're not called to weather these trials, you know, Lone Ranger, all by ourselves. God is his people, family. So come on up. Lots of you trials. You know, just come on up. There's, there's a bunch of you. Should be a whole bunch of you up here. Okay? Right here. Is my trial big enough to walk up? Yes! Okay? If you got one, come on. Don't be bashful. And, and then if you would like to stand behind these people and lay hands on them and pray for them, let's do that. Okay? So we got kind of the front row, and then we got the praying people behind. I just want us to pray 
that God will meet you because it would have been hard for Joseph in the dungeon for 10 years. It was obviously hard for this woman in her difficult marital situation for five years. It is not easy. It's a fight of faith because you can't see the outcome, right? But what we see is God's word. Joseph couldn't see the outcome. But Joseph knew who God was. God's sovereign and God is good and God's loving. So let's just pray now that that those of you who are in thick trials, that God will give you, that, that he will enlighten the eyes of your hearts. Those eyes. To see. So let's pray right now. Lord, we ask for your power to come right now upon these who are in very difficult times. We love them. You love them, more importantly. Lord, would you meet them right now? Would you, by the work of your Spirit, help them to see you in your sovereignty, you in your goodness, that you are sovereign and that you are good. That they can see, even though they can't see how this is going to bring them more of you or how this is going to bring about anything good, that they could see you. So right now, bring your power upon them. I pray for comfort to come. I pray for strength to come right now. I pray that by the power of the Spirit, just like Paul prays in Romans 15, 13, that they would abound in hope by the power of the Spirit, that, that you would, by your power right now, bring them hope. That they would know it and feel it. That great good is coming. Great good is coming through this difficulty. Hold them up, Father, I pray. Meet them right now. You've displayed your love, Father, by sending Jesus. Jesus, you've displayed your love by dying on the cross. Let them see that display of your love for them so they can know, with all the unknowns, your love is going to bring great good through this trial that they're in. So bring your power upon them right now, I pray. I think the Lord wants to speak to some of you also, Proverbs 3, 5. Uh, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Oh God, give them grace to do that, I pray. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your paths straight. So Lord, we we just pray for your, your grace to come upon these brothers and sisters now. And I pray for all of us. I pray that Mercy Hill Church, that that, that we would be men and women, boys and girls, every, every generation, every age, but that we would be a people who, when trials come, we are not shaken. We will grieve, we'll weep, won't be easy, but we will not be shaken because we know what you say and we can rest in your truth. Amen. Put that upon us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, Lord bless you.